Well, good morning, church. I feel like a stranger up here. It's been a while. Before I go into the preaching of God's word, I just want to do some quick housekeeping and give you guys a quick update as to what's been going on and uh, my health. And I appreciate your prayers and support. I want to first and foremost say uh, thank you to the pastors of the church, to Pastor Conley and to Pastor Josh for faithfully preaching the word and also bringing forth these uh, great truths to you on a weekly basis in my absence. A um, couple months ago, I started having some joint pains and kind of brushed them off and uh, then had to go, uh, got so severe, I had to go get it checked out. Uh, so long story short, I have a, a, last week I had an appointment with a specialist and I have an autoimmune condition uh, that makes me sick at times, that kind of gives you big flare-ups and uh, big pain at certain times, and uh, then it kind of just goes away. So a day like today, I feel perfectly fine, and uh, my diagnosis was a, a word that I can't even, I can't even tell you what it is, because I can't remember what it was. Um, it's a fancy, crazy medical word, and uh, what it basically does, though, it just means that my immune system attacks itself, and what that manifests itself in certain times is uh, extreme discomfort and uh, pain in my joints and in other areas such as my eye health as well suffers during these flare-ups which is why I've been having issues with my sight also flares up and gives me other conditions and symptoms which are all related it's kind of complex so I appreciate your prayers there's no need for you to worry too much uh, but uh, I, I do appreciate your care your concern how you've ministered to me, how you've ministered to my family during this time. And so I just want to thank you uh, and to continue to pray for us and continue to pray for my health. But uh, more importantly, know that we're, we're also praying for you and for the health of this church and for all of your circumstances. And so with that being said, I'd like for you to turn to your Bibles in Luke chapter 3. We are going to be picking up right where we left off several weeks ago in Luke's gospel. And today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 3. And I want you to look at verses 18. And we're going to be going all the way to the end of the chapter. And I, and I do ask that you stand for the reading of God's word. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 18. Hear ye this morning the word of the Lord. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But here the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, and he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Gracious Father, we do come before you in this hour petitioning the grace and kindness that was manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, that you would continue to bless this church, continue to bless the preaching of thy word, regardless of the preacher, that the preaching would be anointed 
by your hand, that it would go forth and accomplish all that you have purposed for it to do, and that this morning we would receive the very witness of the one true and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' perfect and precious name we do pray. Amen. Just to kind of recap where we've gone and where we've been in Luke's gospel. Luke is a gospel writer who is focusing primarily on a mega theme here. I want you to think of, of, the, of the theme of Luke's gospel as the kingdom of God breaking into the world. That's the theme of Luke's writing. That's the theme of Luke's gospel. And that is the overlining tone of Luke's theme here. And it's, it's come from, from, from very humble beginnings in chapter 1 of giving us the, the origins of Christ's humanity, letting us know and giving us insight into his lineage, his parenthood, who his parents were, who came before him, such as John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of our blessed Savior. And now culminating here in chapter 3 with the Lord's very anointing at his baptism. And Christ has now come, uh, and he's, he's about to be baptized. But prior to that, we get one last tidbit of information about John the Baptist. What we, have, what we have established thus far in the narrative of Luke's gospel is that John the Baptist is the last prophet of the Old Testament. He's the last prophet of, of God's old covenant people. He is the one who is preparing the way for the Lord, that Yahweh has come in human flesh, that Yahweh has been manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and now Yahweh is about to come onto the world scene in his ministry, in his preaching work. But prior to Christ's preaching, it says in verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he, that being John the Baptist, Preach good news to the people. Good news. Now, imagine for a moment being an audience member of one of John's preaching. And you hear his preaching, and he's a, probably a, a crazy-looking guy from what we have in Scripture, the accounts that we have. He was probably not the most clean-cut Southern Baptist that you would expect. Right? He wasn't a guy who, who had a nice suit on, who was nice and tailored, not had the nice watch, the nice glasses, all these things. That was not who John was. Instead, what you had was a, essentially a, a guy from the country, dressed kind of wildly, maybe smelled a little bit, and he was preaching good news to the people. What did that good news look like? What did it sound like? It sounded like this. Repent. For the kingdom of God is nigh. It's near. That was the good news. Now you may associate good news with maybe something else. Maybe if you listen to a modern day preacher, you'll hear the, the, uh, uh, the good news as being something more or less to this. God loves you. Now that's, that's true, amen, right? Does God love us? Surely. God, for, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, the most quoted scripture of all time. Yet, the good news that John the Baptist preached sounded a little bit different. No mention of God's love, though obviously he must have preached it, and obviously he must have uh, not only known it, experienced it, but also shared it with others. But that wasn't the overall tenor of his good news. It wasn't a comforting, warm, fuzzy uh, uh, message that made sinners happy to remain sinners 
Rather, his message was a little bit different. His message looked at the sinner and said, repent. And this is good news. Why? Because God in his kindness and his forbearance and his mercy and his grace has now given us a time in which we can repent because the kingdom of God is near. The overall message of John's message, likewise unto Christ, is that of the kingdom. And because the kingdom of God is breaking into the world, because the kingdom of God is coming into the world through Jesus Christ, now is good news because we can repent of sin and become citizens of this great kingdom. Looming over the shadow of every person that John was preaching to, that every person Christ would preach to, was the shadow of the Roman Empire. And the expectation of the Jews during this period of time where revolts were common, where messiahs of all sorts sorts and of all kinds were very common as well, all promising political salvation, all these things were, were, were in the underbelly of the culture of Roman Israel at this time. Yet Jesus was coming on the scene, not proclaiming the overthrowing of the political system, but rather salvation and entrance into God's spiritual family, God's spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And this is why it is so important that we understand the good news, not just that John preached, but then that Jesus preaches and fulfills in his earthly ministry. Now, obviously, when we preach the good news of repentance and faith unto life, that will stir up trouble. That will stir up individuals, powers, and structures to come against God's people. It's what we see in verse 19, but here the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, by Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things that Herod had done. So what John the Baptist did is not only did he speak a message of repentance to the people, but he also spoke truth to power. And that is part of the proclamation of the church, brothers and sisters. In the book of Ephesians, it says that we are those who proclaim the manifold wisdom of God even onto the powers, principalities in the heavenly places. We are called as a people, as a church, to speak truth to power, whether it be the governor, whether it be the president, whether it be the city council, whether it be anyone and anyone of high position. We are to preach the gospel even onto them. One of the cooler experiences of my time here in California was back in August when a couple of us went uh, uh, to uh, testify against a um, just a murderous bill here in the state of California that essentially legalized infanticide. It did become law. It did pass. It did become law. But we went, uh, several of us from the church and other churches came uh, to the state capitol in Sacramento uh, to testify against that bill. And one of the neat things that happened at that time was I got to meet the person who was the then um, um, Republican nominee for, for governor, Brian Dolly, and got to speak to him and got to interview him. And I think we sent that out to some of you. And in that interview that I did with him where he graciously gave me some time to, to, to talk to him and to hear from him, I asked him very directly some questions about biblical ethics and about abortion, speaking truth to power. And I was very pleased with his answers, and unfortunately he's not our governor. But should it have been that we ran into Governor Newsom, we too would have spoken the same words. We would have asked him the same questions. We would have called him to repentance over his stance. 
And that's our duty, that's our call, is to speak truth to power, whether they're favorable or unfavorable, whether it's your team or the other team. We are all called to be on Team Jesus. And one of the things that John the Baptist did is that he spoke truth to power. In this case, it got him in trouble. Verse 20 says, it added, that, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. John was now imprisoned because of the firm witness that he gave about the kingdom of God by rebuking Herod the Tetrarch. And it says he had been reproved by him, rebuked by him. And Herod didn't want to be called out because no one in power wants to be called out. When someone is in power, the last thing they want is anything to challenge that power. And the truth of the gospel challenges the very powers and structures of this world. Because ours is a message, ours is a kingdom that is otherworldly. It's not of this world. Jesus said that my kingdom is not part of this world. And so anytime we speak the truth about God's kingdom, it will shake things up. It'll shake things up with your employer. It'll shake things up in your relationships. It'll shake things up with your friends, with your family who are unbelievers. It'll shake things up even to people in places of authority and power. Because the gospel is the message that turned the world upside down. Amen? And so what we see here is that during John's ministry, many were baptized. I want you to write this if you're following the notes. I'm going to get you in the habit of doing the notes again. During John's ministry, many were baptized as a symbol of their repentance. But not only were they baptized as a symbol of repentance, but those who were under John's ministry were baptized not only as a symbol of their repentance, but also as identifying, I want you to write that word in there, identifying with God's arriving kingdom. John preached a gospel of repentance and of the coming kingdom, and those who responded to John's ministry said, yes, I repent of sin, and yes, I want to be a part of God's incoming kingdom. That kingdom that is coming into the world, I want to be part of that. That's what I want to identify with. And so those who had been under John's ministry, who were baptized, as a symbol of the repentance and as identifying with God's arriving kingdom. The question for us this morning then is this, do you identify with God's kingdom? And what I mean by that is not only do I ask you, are you cool with God's kingdom? Like, is that okay with you? Is that nice? Is that a nice notion or idea? But rather, do you identify in God's kingdom in that you are a blood-bought purchase son of the most living God? Do you identify not only as one who, who thinks intellectually that sounds nice, but as one who's been transformed inwardly that I'm a child of God, that I'm a member, an heir of this kingdom? Now the question is raised in verse 21, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open. The question I get often when we go through verses like this of the Bible is, why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus baptized? If John was baptizing 
for the remission of sin, for, the, for, for, for repentance, as a symbol of repentance, for identifying with God's kingdom, why then was it necessary that Jesus be baptized by John the Baptist if he had no sin? He had nothing to repent of. He didn't have to necessarily identify with God's kingdom because he, he is, in a sense, the embodiment of God's kingdom coming into the world. He's the king of God's kingdom. So then why does Jesus have to be baptized? I want to propose to you three reasons why I believe Jesus had to be baptized, as the scripture says, to fulfill all righteousness. But I want, us to, I want to give you some things to consider and think about. I want you to turn in Matthew chapter 3 for a moment. And let's look at Matthew's account there. I want to start in verse 13 of Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So John the Baptist poses the question, Are, are, are you coming to me? I need to be baptized by you. John recognizes the one that is before him is greater than he. And yet, what is Jesus' response to John the Baptist? He says, let it be, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. One of the reasons I believe that Jesus came to John to be baptized is because Jesus, or John rather, in this context, is the last prophet of the Old Testament to Israel. And Jesus, as the greater Israel, came to identify with the sins of Israel and, in fact, of the whole world as our future ransom for sin. I want you to write this in there. To identify with the sins of Israel and the world. So why is Jesus baptized by John the Baptist? One reason is, again, to identify with the sins of Israel and the world as our future ransom for sin in fulfilling all righteousness. For it is fulfilled in Scripture, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the what? Righteousness of God in him. What did Jesus come to fulfill? All righteousness. Not just the righteousness that is referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, righteousness that is then imputed to us as believers, but the righteous requirement that God had laid out in regard for a perfect ransom, a perfect exchange, a perfect propitiation for sin on our behalf. And Jesus is identifying with the sins of Israel and the world as our future ransom here in the example that he sets of being baptized. Another reason I believe Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist was as a symbol of the beginning of his anointed ministry as king of God's kingdom. I want you to write the word anointed in the notes. As a symbol of the beginning of his anointed ministry 
as king of God's kingdom. You see, the word Christ literally means Messiah, Mashiach in the Hebrew, anointed one. One who is anointed, and literally meaning that. So it's not Jesus Christ and that Jesus is his first name, Christ being his last name. This is a, Christ is a title of anointed one. And Jesus is indeed the promised anointed one, the promised one from Genesis chapter 3 that God promised from the beginning of the fall of humanity that he would send forth a seed from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. This promised one that God said to Abraham that through his seed all the nations would be blessed. This promised one who Moses said there would be another one likened unto me, a prophet for God's people. He's the promised one of whom David said he would sit and establish his kingship and his throne forever. This is the promised one, the anointed one who would come in the name of the Lord, who is himself the Lord, our righteousness. This promised one being Jesus. He's the anointed king of God's kingdom. Christ is indeed our king, priest, and prophet. And just like the king was to be anointed in the Old Testament time before the start of his reign, so now the king of God's kingdom is being anointed by the prophet before his enthronement and reign. God's kingdom is coming into the world in Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, the final prophet, anoints the true and last king. This is why it can be said of Christ, he is indeed Lord of lords and king of kings. He is the alpha, the omega. He's the first and he's the last. There is no one who will come after him. Ironically enough, there are religions of all sorts and kinds, including one of the world's largest religions of Islam, who claim, matter of fact, in, in order to become a Muslim, one must recite this confession that Muhammad is the last prophet of God's people. And we as Christians, through the revelation of his word, through the revelation of the gospel, of which, ironically enough, the Quran says is true. It says the gospel is true. And the gospel tells us that, no, it is King Jesus who is the last prophet, priest, and king of God's people. And all scripture bears witness to this truth. And there is even one who bears witness of this truth that is greater than all. It is indeed the triune God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so again, Christ is the anointed one and he is identifying with the sins of the world, fulfilling all righteousness. He's the one who is anointed as the final king of God's kingdom. But also, and the last thing I want you to consider as reasons why Jesus was baptized, and, many, and maybe there are more, but for the purposes of this discussion, I will give you one more, is to demonstrate an example which we are to follow. Jesus sets the standard. Jesus is not only a king who gives edicts, but he's the one who also comes and gives the example for us to walk in. What a blessing it is today that we will also see this practice in action as we'll have Kevin coming forward for baptism after the preaching of God's word. Seeing this ordinance, seeing this sacrament in action, that Jesus laid the groundwork. Jesus set the example for us to now follow him. What a blessed occasion that is.
And now as we turn our attention to the last few verses here of Luke chapter 3. In verse 21 it says, Now when all were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. Here is a beautiful, magnificent example of the triune God being manifested to us in Holy Scripture. You have in this instance Jesus the Son, God the Son from all eternity, now made flesh, standing in the waters of the Jordan, being baptized. And as He is baptized, the miraculous happens. The Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In the notes, if you're following at Christ's baptism, we see the manifestation of the Holy Trinity. When I say manifestation of the Trinity, I'm not saying that, that the Holy Trinity was uh, all three members were bodily, uh, somehow manifested. This would be the claim similar to what we see from Mormonism. Uh, one of the founding, the founding vision of Mormonism posits that Joseph Smith, the prophet of Mormonism, had seen bodily the Father and the Son together. They bodily, physically were before Him. And that's not what we see here at Christ's baptism. We don't see the Father bodily manifested, but rather what we see is the manifestation of God the Son in His incarnation in the waters of the Jordan. The Holy Spirit, giving us this word about the Holy Spirit, that He was bodily represented in the form of a dove. And it came to rest upon Jesus Christ. And from heaven, the voice of the Sovereign One came down saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So in this text of Scripture, you have the three persons of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit revealing themselves, manifesting themselves for a glorious purpose. The Spirit descends in the form of a dove. Why don't you write down the notes if you haven't already? And the Father confirms the appointment of His Beloved while Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. Then it is no wonder why Christ later, after His ministry, His death, burial, and resurrection, He gives the marching orders to the church in Matthew 28. And He says, Go ye therefore into all the world, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. For behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus commands us to baptize in the name of the one true triune God. Why? Because it was the triune God who testified of Himself here in Luke chapter 3 and also in Matthew chapter 3. The Synoptic Gospel, which gives us a similar account. It is a triune God, the Godhead, who anointed and confirmed Jesus. And we too are commanded to be baptized into the name of the triune God. What a magnificent truth this is. What I also want to give you is the splendor of this occasion. This absolute splendor of this occasion. This rarity of occasion, which we don't see elsewhere in Scripture, or rarely do. And it's something called a theophany. Now the word theophany, sometimes you've maybe you've heard the word Christophany. 
or theophany just means a Greek word which means God appearing. And there are times in Scripture where God appears in a very real, tangible fashion. We see it in Genesis chapter 17 and 19, for instance, where, where Yahweh appeared before Abraham. Literally uses the, the terms and the words, Yahweh appeared before Abraham. We see it in Exodus chapter 34, for instance, where it says that Moses spoke face to face with God as one man would speak to another. We have instances in, in Genesis chapter is it 33 where, where Jacob wrestles with God. You have all these interesting theophanies where God appears physically in some capacity, in some way, and wrestles with man and encounters humanity. And humanity encounters the living God in this unique fashion. But none go as so far as this appearance here in Luke chapter 3, where you have for the first time and the only time in recorded history, God the Son in His incarnation, physically there, God manifested in flesh, in Jesus, the Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead, descending, and the voice of His majesty Himself, God the Eternal Father, declaring, you are my beloved Son. This is the theophanies of all theophanies. This is the manifestation of all manifestations. This is the triune Godhead making himself known in human history in the appointment of the Son, Jesus Christ, to be not only the ransom for humanity, but now the King of God's kingdom. It doesn't get bigger than this. That Christ, that our blessed Savior, He is not one who is appointed by man or human hands, but rather His appointment is divine. His appointment is confirmed, not through the hands and the baptism that John gives and offers, but rather what comes after and it's the divine anointing and appointment by the persons of the triune Godhead. By the Spirit descending, which is a sign of, of approval. It's a sign of anointing. Similarly, when the prophet would anoint the king's head with oil, this is a sign of the Spirit now being dripped over their head, being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And now, not only was this an, a sweet anointing of oil, but rather the fullness of the Spirit of God comes upon Christ. And with the voice from heaven, from the Father Himself saying, You're my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased to say that this person is my divine Son, of whom it says of, in Scripture, Yes, there will be a Son given to us, and upon His shoulders will be the government the kingdom, and his name shall be called the Prince of Peace, the Eternal Father, the Mighty God, El Gabor. Of the increase of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 tells us. It is also the same son that is prophesied in Psalm 2, of which it says of this son that we are to kiss the son, lest he be angry. And what will he do and accomplish? He shall rule the nations with a rod of iron and break to pieces the nations that do not obey God and smash them like pottery, that they should be scattered 
This promised son is now here. And Jehovah God, Yahweh says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That Jesus is the one who will live a perfect, holy, blameless life. He'll live the life that you and I cannot live, could not live, will never live apart from him. Because we're all broken. Because we're all sinners. When you look in this room, when you look at each other, when you look in the mirror, know that you are looking at a sinner. But the good news is that when you look in that mirror and you see the sinner that you are, as Paul did, who fell almost in dread, as he says of himself in Romans chapter 7, he says, Woe am I! Who will rescue this body undergoing death? Because he recognized that there is nothing that is good in me, he says, that is in my flesh, Romans 7 18. But he says, who will rescue me? Who will rescue this body, this man who I see in the mirror? Who will rescue that man? And he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Why? Because this Jesus is the one whom, of whom the Father said, that's my son. In him, I'm well pleased. I'm well pleased in Jesus. Why? Because he's perfect. He's holy. He's blameless. He's God come into human flesh. And he will take upon himself the punishment of humanity. So that when you see yourself in the mirror and you see the sinner that you are, know also that he that stands behind you in that mirror whom you cannot see with physical eyes is the Son of God himself. The Son of God who purchased you, who bled for you, who died for you, who gave you the hope of everlasting life because you, being a sinner, are now a sinner saved by grace through faith in the one in whom God is well pleased. God is well pleased in Jesus. And through Jesus, God can be well pleased in you. And that's good news. Isn't that marvelous? That in the beloved, God sees what Jesus has done and accomplished. And because of what Jesus has accomplished, he can speak of you as well in these terms and saying, you too, because of what Jesus has done, you too are my son. You're my daughter. And in you, because of Christ, I'm well pleased. And so though we can look in the mirror, we can beat ourselves, and we can, we can lament, and oftentimes we should lament, and we should beat ourselves in a sense over our sin. But know this, there was one who was already beaten. There is one who was already bled. There's one who has already died. And that's Jesus. And God is well pleased in his perfect, satisfactory work so he can be well pleased in you. And know this, dear brother and sister, dear saint, dear sinner, in Jesus, you're forgiven. Amen? Amen? We're forgiven because of the Son in whom God was well pleased. This is good news. And no doubt this brings into focus the greatest theophany of Scripture. That God in the three persons of the Trinity being manifested here for this purpose, for this sake. That God was confirming. God was making an oath. 
God was making a promise that this, his son, would now bring salvation to the world. I want you to write this in the last part of our teaching and insert this morning. The triune God bears witness that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one of whom Scripture foretells, of whom Scripture testifies, that all of Scripture testifies of this Jesus, so that those who believe on his name may have life. And I want you to turn, as our last Scripture reading this, this morning, to 1 John chapter 5. And notice how the Apostle John using analogies of Christ's baptism, brings forward this perfect circle of redemption that starts with the waters of baptism and, and the testimony of the blood of Christ. Notice what it says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. I want to stop there for a moment. Notice what it says. That Christ, that Jesus, was the one who came by water and blood. Now this can mean two things. It likely does have a dual meaning and fulfillment. Water and blood, one signifying, of course, the the pains of childbirth. This is reference to his incarnation, that he came through the, the breaking of the water of Mary's womb and the blood that came associated with that, but also by the very nature of his baptism. That Jesus, at his baptism, was brought forth out of the waters of the Jordan so that he may now bleed for you and me. And how do we know this is connected to the baptism? Well, one is the association of water. And two is the fact that it says the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Who is the one who testifies in, in Luke chapter 3? Who's the one who descends from heaven to testify of the anointing of the Son? It's the Spirit who testifies. It's the Spirit of God who comes in the form of the dove to testify of the truth because the Spirit is the truth. And it says in verse 7, for there are three that testify. The Spirit and the water, and the blood. And these three agree. You have a King James Bible. You'll have what's often referred to as the Johannian comma, which says that there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Now, that's a great scripture. It's not in the earliest manuscripts of, of the Bible, so it's likely, not likely, originally uh, came from John. Uh, but nonetheless... It speaks of the triune God in that fashion. And here in what we do know for sure to be Scripture, in verse 8, is that the one that testifies, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. What do they agree about? That Jesus was holy, perfect, and blameless. That through his perfect obedience, starting with the baptism of water, Actually, his perfect obedience goes stretches far beyond that, but for the purposes of the, of the redemptive narrative here, starting with the baptism that he receives from John the Baptist, the water that testifies, 
and the spirit that testified of Christ's truthfulness of his ministry and the blood being the blood by which he purchased us, the blood that spilled from his hands, from his brow, from his feet, and from his side. These things are in agreement. What did he agree of? Verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. One of the reasons why the theophany of Christ's baptism is so important is because what God is essentially doing is he is affirming himself. He is, a, he is testifying of himself. And God testifying of himself is important because there is no one greater that can testify. And there is no one greater to testify than God himself. So there's no one who is greater to be testified of and by than God himself. So he says, that's why John says that the testimony of man is essentially one thing. And that's important. We need a testimony of man. That's why, for instance, in John's gospel, John says he writes these things so that we may know Jesus is the Son of God. He is testifying personally of these things. We see Peter also saying these things are true in 2 Peter chapter, chapter uh, 1 when he speaks of the, the testimony that he saw in which on uh, the Mount of Transfiguration he saw the glorious voice or heard the glorious voice of the Father and he saw the transfiguration of Christ and he says that we bear testimony of these things. The four Gospels are testimonies of man of the truthfulness of the claims of Jesus Christ. But there is one who testifies who is greater. And that is the triune God himself. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit testify of these things. And he affirms and confirms that this story is not just a mere story, but rather it is the foundation of human civilization and of human history. That Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of God. Because this is the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Verse 10 says, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. So those who believe in Christ also receive this testimony. And the testimony comes from the triune God himself. Where God saves you in his son, Jesus Christ, and gives you the spirit as the deposit for the inheritance of eternal life. And then it, say, it goes on to say, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. That's where it is. It's in his son. It's not in your bank account. It's not in your job description. It's not in your works. It's not in your marriage. It's not in your kids. It's not in your upbringing. It's not in your past. It's not in your future. This life, this eternal life that is promised by the Father is only in His Son, Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other name. There is no salvation in Muhammad. 
There's no salvation in Charles Taze Russell. There's no salvation in Buddha. There's no salvation in Joseph Smith. There's no salvation in John Calvin. There's no salvation in anyone else but in the name of Jesus. And this is the testimony. And whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And he finishes this thought by saying in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. That is one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible. Why? Because not only do we have this ethereal hope of eternal life, but rather it is a st- an established truth that we have now, present tense, eternal life. Not something that we just look forward to in the future when we die and go to heaven, but rather something that we enjoy now. Did you know, brother and sister, that if you're in Christ this morning, you now have currently the eternal life? It is in you. The Spirit has deposited that inheritance in your hearts even now. So that the words of Christ may be true. Who says in John 11, that whoever dies but believes in Him will never die. That's because this Son is the resurrection and the life. In Him is life. In Him is resurrection. And in Him Dear beloved, you are well pleased. All to the glorious grace and praise of the one true and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To close this time, the triune God bears witness that Jesus is the Christ, that those who believe on his name may have life and life eternal. Let me pray. Blessed Savior, we thank you that you have given us this testimony, this witness through Scripture, through the Spirit, through the water and the blood that came. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for thy perfect obedience, for thy perfect good work. In so doing so, you purchased for God a people of every tribe, every nation, of every language, to come under the rulership, headship, kingship of your most blessed and glorious name. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you purchased a people onto good works so that in you we find ourselves approved. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us this salvation that no man can take it away, that no man can steal nor plunder. But indeed, Lord, we have, through thy shed blood and through thy perfect obedience, a perfect gift, life everlasting, that no man and no one and no thing can steal nor subvert. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for thy goodness, for thy grace, for thy kindness. We ask, Lord, now that you would testify in us continually the things that we have seen, the things that we have heard in Holy Scripture, that we may know that these things are true, that we may live in such a way that these things are true. 
so that we may continue to testify of thy grand name and as long and along with the father and the son and the spirit continue to testify of the greatness of these things that the gospel is indeed the power of god unto salvation we thank you lord for all these things and more and we turn our attention now lord to thy good sacraments of the lord's table and baptism following the example that you've laid for us in scripture and we testify that these things are true in the name of your son we do pray amen